0: Second week in this series called Messy, Handling Conflict and Controversy in Church, because there's plenty of examples that everybody has probably in their lives of when conflict and controversy were not handled correctly in a church. And usually what that results in is people kind of just being ricocheted out of the church. They're being wounded. They're upset with God. They don't like Christians, and they don't like organized religion, right, because they've been hurt. And I remember, for me, this is, as I began to think about this and pray over this, and uh, as I mentioned last week, Asher was the one that really, my daughter Asher was the one that gave me the idea for this because I was struggling. I was like trying to think, okay, we're done with our finance series. By the way, there's been all kinds of cool things coming from that series and then our Financial Peace University classes. Just watching people find freedom and think differently about money has been really, really neat. Uh, But then between that and the Jewish feast series that we're going to be doing, I was really stuck. I was doing hours of research on things and praying over things, trying to figure out what to preach on. So I was out with Asher one day. We went to uh, a coffee shop, and I said, Asher, what do you think I should preach on? And uh, she just looked at me. She was like, for real? And I was like, yeah. I was like, I am really struggling. I said, I just need to generate some." like, God, what are you doing? Will you speak to me? And she said, well, there's a lot of hard things going on right now. What if you just spoke to like the controversial issues that are out there? And I was like, and then immediately, like the whole series kind of just came into view for me. And I was like, I know exactly where we're going to be, Matthew 18 and blah blah. So it's just cool how God would just speak uh, in that time of need through my daughter and just how clear, and she took me up on it. She wasn't just like, I don't know. You know, she was like, what about this? And uh, so uh, it's pretty cool where this series has come from because what it does in my own heart is huge. Because this is a very, very, very practical and personal series, not only for you, but also for me. Because, again, we've all been in that situation where we've been hurt by somebody in a church among the people of God. And we need to, I think, have some parameters on how to handle that. Because I remember when I first got here, I asked uh, Pastor Dean, uh, you know, Pastor Dean retired last summer. But I asked him uh, 12 years ago, Dean, how do you get to the end of a 40-year ministry right? Because when he retired, he's 40 years into this thing. I said, how do you get to the end of it and not be a bitter old man? I said, you're working on the old man part really well, but how do you get there and not be bitter? Because I know pastors that are really, really bitter people because they, for decades, have been wounded deeply by the very people that they love and are called to serve. And right before I moved up here, the last piece of advice I got from a pastor was, look, if you're going to go into full-time ministry, Kyle, you need to have really thick skin. And I remember being like, like, that sounds like okay advice, but there has to be more than that. And then when I moved up here and Dean and Terry began to mentor me and guide me and they said, look, you do need to have thick skin because leadership and ministry are not easy places to swim. However, you need to have a really, really soft heart. And so this series here for me has been very, very personal in that way because 12 years in, even pastors get hurt. And pastors can get hurt repeatedly. And what Terry taught me early on is that, Kyle, when you go and you meet people and they come up the stairs, they come into your life, don't always just look at where they are. Always try to get to know their story and where they've come from. And that has been huge for me because that takes a real real measure of humility because it's not just, and I'm saying all this because it's not just me preaching at you guys and saying, oh, you need to do it this way. Like even as a pastor, like I have to remember that I've got to approach this stuff with a lot of humility, a lot of grace, and certainly a lot of mercy because people have said even to me very, very hurtful things very hurtful things about me and my family because they do it out of hurt they do it out of a a place that things just blew up in their life and they just need somebody to say something to you know and i tend to come into people's life when they're in those positions right (laughs) so i've gotten kind of like i've just gotten to be like okay i'm gonna be i'm gonna be pretty gracious with this because they're speaking from pain let's get to where that is let's get to what's going on and we got to do that together that's what the people of jesus need to be like we need to be forgiving. We need to be willing to be gracious to other people, to be merciful, even if they don't deserve it. That's a very Jesusy thing to do, right? It's a very Jesusy thing to do. So, handling conflict and controversy in the church—very uh, personal for me, and I hope so for you as well. So, our first question—you know what we've been wrestling with for the last couple weeks—and I want to reintroduce today: As a follower of Jesus, if you are one, how should I handle conflict and controversy in? Church, how should we go about doing life with difficult and messy people? Because last week we established for the first time in human history that people are difficult and messy. I mean, there's revelation, I know. But when we step into this room, when we step into small groups, when we step into Bible studies, recovery groups, outreach events, all these different things that our church do, we need to under church does, we need to understand that we are doing that with people, and people have baggage. People have woundedness. People have opinions, sometimes very strong ones that maybe you don't agree with. And so we're gonna all get together and we're gonna worship, connect, and serve. We're all gonna get together and we're gonna get to know Jesus and grow in our relationship with Jesus. That's messy. That's really, really messy. And people like clean cut, right? We like things to be either this or that because that just allows us to make sense of the world and be easy with the world. But people are not easy. People are difficult and messy, myself included. So last week we established this five-step pattern that Jesus gives us. So say somebody sins against you personal. Again, this is a very personal series. Say somebody sins against you. What's the very first thing that you should do? What's step number one, heart, your heart. Where is your heart? Are you being humble before a word ever comes out of your mouth? Why are you about to say something? How are you about to say something? That is where Jesus says we need to start, with humility. Then number two, and this is the one that we often just, we skip right over without even thinking about. What do you need to do then? You go and get your friends that are on your side, right? And you go and bully that person that hurts your feelings. That's what Jesus says to do. No, he doesn't. Not at all. He says you need to go directly to that person, and you need to talk about what that person has done to you. Why? So that you can restore that relationship repentance on their part, restoration on both. That is the point of going to that person so that it doesn't become this big toxic thing. Now, there are a couple caveats to that though, right? Say you don't know how to go and have that conversation with that person. Are you allowed to go and get some counsel from somebody else to have that conversation? Of course you are, but you're gonna go to somebody that's godly and has some discernment and isn't just gonna be a gossip. The second thing you probably wanna consider is is that person a physical threat to you, is that person dangerous to you and or your family? Then, obviously, you're not going to go one-to-one and get the person with, get together with that person. That is a situation where you need to move a little bit further down the chain, a little bit quicker, because that person is a threat to you. So there are some things to consider as we do this, and that's why the good counsel helps. Because if that one-to-one does not work, Jesus says, then and only then is when you go get a couple other people. Now, this is, though, this is the step, though, when you get your friends to go and beat up on them, right? No. No, you go get some godly people, a couple people that will help you have that conversation, that have both parties' interests in mind, that are mature and godly enough to say, we need to restore this relationship. Like, that's really what we're trying to get at here is, yes, repentance of what was done wrong, but ultimately to restore this relationship. But what if that doesn't work? What does Jesus say is the next step? Then, now it starts getting really awkward. Because Jesus is very protective of his people, and Jesus is not willing. That harm just keeps getting done. So if that person is unrepentant, will not seek forgiveness, is just like, whatever, I don't care what you say, then only then do you bring it before the whole church. But unfortunately, that's where most of the time these things go. It goes from hurt to not say anything forever, stew over it, get miserable over it, get all of my party involved so that everybody now hates this person, and now it blows up on social media. Or gossip just runs rampant through the church. And that's why we see so much hurt and harm and unhealthiness because Jesus says, no, no, only at that point do you bring it to the whole church and you get church leadership involved. Why? Because there, there can't be any place left for that person to hide with the harm that they're doing. Then it needs to be exposed. That's a church leadership thing and it's super awkward and it's super painful to have to do that. If that doesn't work, what then do you do? See, there's steps, all with the purpose of restoration and repentance. And the last and final, most nuclear option is then that person needs to be removed from the body. And that is awful and it is painful, but it is still meant to restore because the whole purpose of that is to say, look, this work, this healing, it cannot be done with this person still in the body because they continue to cause harm because they have caused harm and don't care and won't repent. And there's no way that this is going to get fixed with this person still in your midst. So no, they can't come to things anymore publicly, but. We need to still and be mind. We need to be mindful of restoring that person through repentance. That was Second Corinthians last week. It's also in Matthew 18, where we were last week and where we'll be today. That's where the story of the good shepherd going and getting his lost sheep. Right, leaving the ninety-nine to go get that one to do what? Bring it back to restore the sheep to the fold. And so the idea is, no matter what's going on, you are trying your very best at restoration. You were trying your very best to get that person, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, to get to a point of confession and then restoration. And that's really hard and it's super, super messy because as we move down that path, it just gets harder and harder and harder unless we have humble hearts. And that's why Jesus says, get this done with just a couple people and move on from it. so that's where we were last week. That's what we were looking at. And the two big things that we got from last week, again, were just that we need to have humility, when it comes to conflict and we need to have community, we got to do it with good godly community, not gathering people that disagree with us, but doing it with humility first and in good godly community that can help us do things like this better. So this week to add to that, we're going to be looking at a third thing, mercy. Um, And mercy is tricky because would you, first question, would you consider yourself a merciful person? As in I'm a forgiving person person or I'm a compassionate person. Would you see yourself that way? Right? Well, then the next question might be, what exactly is mercy? What are you saying that I need to define? So mercy and like just a really kind of tight biblical definition would be this, that you are not getting a punishment or having to suffer a consequence that you deserve, that you deserve So this is something you've rightly earned a punishment or a negative consequence. And in God's economy, he's saying, I'm not going to give that to you even though you deserve it. That is mercy. And then that's something again, that we'll talk about this morning that we have, and we should reflect. And I found a quote kind of just talk about how God's mercy operates. So the mercy of God describes his focused tendency of compassionate forgiveness toward his people. So in the Old Testament, especially, you see them just making all kinds of dumb mistakes, constantly messing up, and God being merciful to them, right? Before he actually has to drop a God-sized hammer on them. Because you see that in the Old Testament, but we forget that hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by of God saying, stop, 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 stop. Don't touch that stove. Don't touch that stove. Why? I want to touch the stove. Ah, it hurts so bad, right? That's Old Testament over and over and over again. But it's this this focused tendency of him to forgive his people in the midst of, they're distressful and dire circumstances. So I have done something dumb. I've gotten myself in trouble with my mouth or with my attitude or whatever, some kind of sin issue I've gotten myself in trouble with and God's merciful and does not give me the consequences or the punishment for that decision that I made. That is God's mercy worked out in our lives. And ultimately, the thing you're going to see today is what Jesus talks about eternally and how big of a debt that was how big of a consequence that was but we get to celebrate communion because he paid that debt he did that for us now mercy though this is not just like a jesus thing here this is not like okay that's for him because some of the the attributes of god are communicable as in you can have some of the attributes of god you can't have his omniscience right because that would be great for those of us that are married Like I wish I would have had omniscience when Brittany and I first got married because then I would have been all set. But God was like, no, you don't. You just have to figure her out. And it was a whole thing, right? But mercy, I can have. I can absolutely have mercy and I can share that. But again, we're not necessarily in a culture that lives that out much. So we have to then contrast who God is with the world that we live in. I mean, this is what we have to do with our faith. It can't just be like up there in the sky. It's got to be lived And so let's start with a few ideas. First, what is God like? There's a verse out of Exodus 34 that gets repeated constantly in the Old Testament. It gets quoted by all kinds of different authors. And it says, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious. He's merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger as we're called to be by James, the half brother of Jesus in the New Testament and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So the question then is, if this is who God is, do you see yourself as merciful? If you're following Jesus, do you see yourself as gracious? Do you see yourself as slow to anger? Or do you just like, and you've given yourself all kinds of commi- like, uh, permission just to commit that sin. Are you abounding in steadfast love? Are you abounding in faithfulness? Are those things that mark you as a follower of Jesus? Because if you're if not, you're not following Jesus. You're following like a version that maybe you've made up because your life should reflect the Savior that you say you follow. And so if that's who God is, do we have access to that? Hebrews 4, all the way now in the New Testament, would say we do. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness because now we have Jesus as Savior. The wall's been torn down so we can come into the presence of God so that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help us In time of need. So, not only is this who God is, but we have access to it. So, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, takes these two ideas and he says, Look, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be a member of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, what should your life look like? That's a big deal in Matthew. What should you look like? Our first one is from Matthew 5 7. It's our call to worship this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And of course, if you don't show mercy, what's going to happen? Yikes. Yikes. God is not going to show you mercy. So that's what we're going to get into today. That's really the crux of the matter for Jesus today. A little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So even among the people of God, because here's what I've seen Christians do to other Christians, even in this church, they are wronged. They don't say anything. It festers. They get angrier and angrier and angrier. Then they make an enemy out of that person. So if you want to take the leap and make an enemy out of another Christian, what should you do first with them? You should love them. And then you should start praying for them. So if you feel your heart getting that toxic about somebody, your first response, because what Jesus says is I need to pray for that person. And I need to love them. Because then God's going to probably start changing your heart as well. And it goes back to the humility piece from last week. So this is like, these are the steps that we need to think about when it comes to conflict and controversy in church. Not that anything is going on right now at Quayball Church that I have to preach this for, but because this is great stuff to know because this is getting to know Jesus and growing in our relationship with him, right? And so him saying, this is what this looks like. This is who God is. This is what you have access to and you should reflect it as a result. And so a couple questions about God's mercy then. So if he is merciful Shouldn't you, if you're a follower of Christ, be merciful? Shouldn't you be able to say, I am a merciful person because Jesus is merciful and he was merciful with me. And then second one, if we have access to this mercy, if we can find mercy with God, Hebrews 4, shouldn't others find it in us? Shouldn't that just be expected of us that people can find mercy, that we're not just gonna be all about making people pay every time. And I'm not talking about a lack of justice. In Matthew 18, he's already gone through the steps of accountability. How do you do accountability with somebody that's sinned against you? There are steps of accountability. There is justice, but the whole time, how do we get through that in a Christ-like way? Well, we've gotta be merciful as we do accountability. As we do these harder things, we need to be like Jesus. We're not just looking for retribution all the time. We're not just looking to punish people because most of us, I think, have an incorrect view of forgiveness. A lot of the times people will say, I can't forgive them because that's just like saying what they did is okay. And that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is just giving up my right to punish them. It's changing my heart. It has nothing to do with them or what they did being right or wrong. It's just me saying, I'm not going to live my life seeking to punish them any longer. I'm going to release that because it's tearing me up and it's making me bitter and it's making me different in all my other relationships because God says, I was merciful with you, so you need to do that with other people. But the hard thing is, though, with all these things, with this kind of, this line of thinking, is that we don't live in a merciful society, do we? We, do, we live in a society that's really narcissistic. Like, we are all about us in our society. We live in a society full of entitlement. We live in a society full of victimhood. Like, right? we're all victims. Everybody, it's all about, you know, everybody's attacking me and, you know, this, that, and the other. And we live in a society that, that is full of cancel culture. You do, oh, oh, you did something wrong 50 years ago? You're dead forever, right? It's, and that's just like, there's like no ifs, ands, or buts. And we're getting worse and worse and worse as we kind of get in these echo chambers with our news and our social media feeds and like all this kind of stuff. We just sink further and further into whatever little hole we want. And that is the culture that we live in. Mercy is almost impossible in that kind of environment because I can't show you mercy if everything is about me, can I? I cannot show anybody mercy if everything is about me. I can't let you off the hook because I need to make sure that people know you what you did is wrong, and I need you to pay for that because you've wounded me because I am a victim. And that's, if you're not careful, that's the soup that we swim in. And so this is very, very countercultural. That's why I said this is very, very applicable because it's something that we live in, and we need to understand how different Jesus is telling us to live. And it's no different. Everything was the same two thousand years ago. People are like, "Oh my gosh, it's gotten so bad today. It's not. A, it's not like it used to be." Yes, it is. It's exactly how it used to be exactly how it used to be. This is 2,000-year-old stuff we're talking about. People were just the same back then. They were selfish. They were insecure. They had their own baggage. They had abuse and woundedness and mental health, and they had people doing wrong and stupid and dumb things, and there was injustice, and Jesus Christ experienced it all as a reminder, right? So Jesus Christ gets it because people are the same don't get sucked into that old nostalgic, like, oh, I remember back when it, it was like Barney Fife and his friends running around my neighborhood. Like, Barney Fife never ran around your neighborhood. It's not been like that. It's uh, People have always been bad. We're just more aware of it nowadays. And we're worse probably in some of the ways, yes, because we're more focused on it now. But people have been people for 2,000 years. But Jesus calls us to something different, radically different. And it'll affect your family. It's going to affect your, your relationship with your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your kids, right, other believers, other people in your life, even that aren't, believers. So our questions again. So if God is merciful, shouldn't you be merciful? And if we have access to this mercy, shouldn't others find it with us? And can you wrestle with this last question here as well a little bit? Will you seek restoration, point of Matthew 18, instead of retribution? Because that is the world that we live in. They want retribution. They want people to pay. And forgiveness is not saying what they did is okay. It's just giving up your right to make them pay and that's just that's just a different way it's a freeing way it's why jesus talks a lot about it even in the old testament why he talks so much about it so hopefully now that we got a picture of god's mercy and then what he expects of us now let's jump in with that understanding and that context to matthew chapter 18 we're gonna we did the first half last week of Jesus giving us those, those steps of accountability when somebody sinned against you. And now what Peter's going to do here in verse 21 is he's going to ask Jesus a follow-up question to that. If somebody has sinned against you, this is what you do. So naturally the question for Peter is, all right, well, well, how many times should I forgive them then? You've given us these steps, but how many times should I do that? So here's Peter in verse 21. So he approached Jesus and he asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister, right? People of God, that's who. kingdom of heaven people, who sins against me, as many as seven times. So historical context here, what's he mean by that? Well, in their day, and in this time, 2,000 years ago, the number seven was a biblical number of completeness, of perfection. What did the rabbis say, the Jewish rabbis say at that time? Well, you need to forgive somebody three times. Three times, and then you're all set, right? So here's Peter being like, okay, so if I do seven times, surely that's good. Like that must be okay, right? Seven times. And Jesus is like, no, you're still missing the point. Because forgiveness for Peter is still an outward thing that you do. It's a check in the box. So if I do seven times, then I'm good, right? Oh, you've wounded me once. You got six left. I'll give you six more chances. Oh, now you're down to five, right? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Again, as with Jesus, with many things, it's about your heart first, Peter. And Peter still doesn't quite understand that, is like as honest as he's being. In verse 22, Jesus says back, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Now, depending on what translation you have, again, I'm using the CSB, there's different ways that that phrase, 70 times seven can be translated. But ultimately this is a shocking statement to the people that were listening to Jesus initially, because back then Greek culture was very much a a pride uh, kind of culture and shame was a terrible thing. Roman culture, same thing, they got it from the Greeks. And so the idea that I would just forgive somebody, like again, people are people. They did not want to look bad. And so this was really like, really shocking. I'm not supposed to keep track of how many times I forgive them. That's something that would have been pretty jarring for those people. And then right now, after verse 22, Jesus is about to explain a couple things. And I want to explain first what he's going to say before we get to it, just to give us a little context. So Jesus is not talking to Christians right now in this passage, is he? No, Christians don't exist yet, right? There are no, like, I've been born from above, John chapter 3, born of the Spirit, kind of believers like that's not happened because the death burial and resurrection has not happened yet he is talking to jewish people that are the people of god so he's saying look as a reminder this is the expectation for the people of god now this translates obviously to us two thousand years later as a church but he's saying if you're going to be a member of my community this is what this looks like when they say brothers and sisters they're not talking about fellow christians they're talking about fellow jews the people of god like the kingdom of heaven is a here and now thing. If you want to be a part of my kingdom, this is what your life looks like now. And so the first thing to kind of break this next section down, because he's going to tell them a parable, I'm going to address two really important things. Forgiving the people of God who beg for mercy, as well as, and I don't want us to miss the second part of this, as well as the severe consequences awaiting those who refuse to give. So this is a heavy passage that we're about to jump into. Next, a quote, God eternally and unconditionally forgives those who repent of so immense a debt against him that it's unconscionable, it's unimaginable for believers to refuse to grant forgiveness to each other for sins that remain trivial in comparison. It's just this idea that, okay, what was done to me, what was said to me, the look that they gave me, the thing that they said to my kid or about my kid or on and on and on. Like, I need to remember the sin I've been forgiven of, that I get to celebrate this table because I've had an unimaginable debt forgiven. So how could I withhold that mercy from someone when maybe what they did wasn't really that big of a deal? Like, that's there's humility in that, but that's difficult to do. So he jumps into this parable then. So he says in verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be, can be compared to a king. So Old Testament thinking, this is God who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, Old Testament, that's God's people. Verse 24, when he began to settle accounts, Old Testament language for judgment, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. So again, what's going on here? Kingdom of heaven is both present and future, but primarily present at this time. And then when he says is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, that means he's about to tell Peter and these people listening a parable full of hyperbole, full of really extreme circumstances and extreme language to get them to understand how much God hates an unforgiving heart, like how harshly he views and treats the sin of unforgiveness, especially in light of it being given to you. Because Jews did as well. They got the forgiveness of God. They understood the forgiveness of God. And so then the talent, not many of us uh, spend money in talents anymore. So a talent was the highest known denomination of currency at that time in the Roman world. So it's at the edge of human understanding, right? It's as big as you can get. So Jesus, again, hyperbole, it's as big as you can get, but not only a talent, but then he says 10,000. And 10,000 is the highest word for a number that the Greek language had. So again, this is at the very, very edge of human understanding. They just, you know, he's like saying a bajillion zillion dollars is basically what Jesus is saying here. But to under because that still doesn't make sense. So I began to research this further. Like, how can we make that more concrete? Well, what this guy owes is a thousand times the annual revenue of Galilee, Judea, Samaria, and Idiomaia put together. So at the time Jesus is telling this story, the annual revenue of these four regions was a thousand times smaller than what this guy owed. So it's ridiculous. It's like obscene amounts of debt that this guy has. And so again, that's what Jesus is trying to say here. He's making a contrast. It's it's like stupid amounts of debt. And then verse 25. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. So this is an Old Testament idea here. This is a very first century problem here. This is not talking about casting this guy and his family into hell because they're not going to be on the eternal hook for something that he did. This is a very real, scary reality for these people. You can't pay your debts, you're gonna be sold into slavery. You can't pay your your debts, you're gonna be thrown into debtor's prison until you can pay it off. What that means is you're gonna be tortured until your family can pay the debt for you. It's very scary, very real, unimaginable reality for them that was just like, oh, they would have understood this very, very clearly. So this is a very harsh penalty for not being able to, to pay this. But at this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Not likely, right? It's a thousand times the revenue of four major areas in, at that time. So this is an unimaginable debt. And so he says, I'll pay you everything. Then in verse 27, the master of that servant had compassion. He released him and then forgave him the loan. So remember, this is the first time Jesus is saying this and it would have absolutely shocked his listeners. Like, what do you mean? Because again, culturally, you don't just do that. That's shameful to do something like that, that you would just forgive him his debt. Not only did he not sell him into slavery, but he's just gonna let him off the hook. That's shameful. That's embarrassing to do something like that. So scene two, right? He sets that up and then he moves into scene two of the parable in verse 28. Because what happens now, right? Surely this guy reacts well. Surely he does the right thing. But as you can see here, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, So 100 denarii, we're gonna get into the difference here in a little bit, but he grabs him, he starts choking him and says, pay what you owe. And again, for his original audience, pretty shocking. Man, this guy just forgave all that debt, I can't believe that. And then, well, surely the guy will go out with a changed life, right? Imagine applying this to your own life. Surely we'll go out and live differently because we've been forgiven of such an unimaginable debt. That's the understanding of the storyline, but he doesn't. He goes out and he does all of these things. And then again, the difference, it's just, it's a, it's a ridiculous difference that Jesus is making here. It's, uh, so 100 denarii, no small amount of money, it's payment for 100 days' work. But in comparison, though, let's look at some of the numbers here, how this fleshes out. A talent is anywhere from 60, as in 59, 60, 61, from just 60 all the way to 10,000 denarii. We're talking ancient money here, so there's a lot of variance, but there's a difference that is huge. So the ratio then, for his listeners at the time, two thousand years ago, the ratio was anywhere from sixty thousand to one up to one million to one. So again, it's a just a ridiculous difference in the amounts that are owed by these two servants, by these two individuals. And what have we been forgiven? You know what and, and, and do I fall into a category where I see this difference and live differently because of it? So sets that up, and then at this, then he says his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, same words that he used himself, and I will pay you back. And then verse 30, what's that say? He wasn't willing, he would not do it. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. So this is like, again, this is, we're not talking eternal punishment here, we're talking a severe and awful punishment that he is trying to inflict on this guy when he was just forgiven this unbelievable debt. But we literally in the same fashion, you personally, make this personal, you have to refuse mercy to somebody else. You've gotta make a choice to live this way and to be this way. And that's why it was so shocking. And then verse 31, when the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and they went and reported to their master everything that had happened. And now we move into scene three. Of this, you've got these characters introduced, the things that they're doing. What's the result of this being, this guy being like this? Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. I had mercy on you, in other words. And then the point of the whole entire parable is verse 33. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Shouldn't you have done that? Shouldn't you have reflected that same level of mercy? And because he was angry, verse 34, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So essentially, what is Jesus trying to say in this parable? He's saying that forgiven people should act like what? Forgiven people. If you want to be a member of the community of God, and again, he's still talking to Jews at this point. He's saying, you need to reflect the forgiveness God. You need to act as if this is who you are. This needs to be your understanding because this here is an incredibly harsh consequence. It's a discipline on one of these disobedient servants for acting like this. And it is extreme. It's an extreme discipline. And we see this in the New Testament. And here's what I'm trying to get at this morning. Here's what Jesus is getting at this servant this is this has nothing to do this is a here and now he's not talking about eternity because you know until you can pay out because obviously there's a way out even as possible as it may seem there's a way out of this this prison which there's no way out of hell no matter what you do there's no way out of hell so what he's saying is that in this life if you're a christian this is important do not think that you have a free pass to your sin do not think that because god is very very serious about the way that we live it's why in matthew 18 he laid out the process for accountability when somebody sins. And in Hebrews 12, he says this specifically, the author of Hebrews, unknown author, verses five and six, he says, my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. And then verse six, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So, in this story in Matthew 18, you're looking at an extremely harsh but deserved consequence of being merciless. This is how Jesus, this is how God views somebody that's received this mercy and then refuses to give it to other people. And it's like, I don't want to receive this kind of discipline in this life, if you're like a genuine follower of Jesus and you're trying to make your life look like Jesus, this should be a terrifying thing that God, because of your sin is going to discipline you. And then to Matthew 18 parable purpose, that it's gonna be that harsh, that God is gonna let you suffer the consequences. And that just like we read in Matthew 5, seven, okay, you don't wanna show mercy, then I'm not gonna give you mercy anymore. God, I need your help, I need your help. No, I'm done giving you my mercy. You're refusing it to other people. So in this life, we're going to have those kind of consequences potentially because of the choices that we make. And just in case there was anybody in the back that was not listening or not clear, in verse 35, Jesus says, So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from the heart. This needs to be a genuine thing. And again, as with Jesus, everything always comes back to the heart. So what is Jesus really trying to get at? Again, it's important to remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Jews at the time. He's talking kingdom of heaven, which is this is what your life needs to look like right now. You have to do this. If you are going to be a member of the community of heaven, this is what your life looks like. And he's also saying and reminding his listeners in really scary terms here, that if you refuse this stuff, there could be very, very harsh consequences. Because what does that look like practically speaking? Because now it's like, okay, well, what kind of consequences? What does that look like? Well, let's just pick a few verses from the New Testament just to see the different consequences for our, as believers, our unrepentant sin. So look at from 1 Peter. Uh, and sorry, guys, if you didn't know this verse is in the Bible, it very much is. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. And that sounds nice, right? She may be weaker than you physically, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so that what? Your prayers will not be hindered. Guys, if you are disrespecting your wife and not treating her as Christ would because he loved the church, Ephesians 5, and he gave himself for her. If you're not treating your wife and you're sinning in your marriage, your prayers are going to be hindered. Now, this is not the only one of these kinds of sins. It's not like wives are like, oh, whew, God, that doesn't apply to me. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. He's talking about marriage. He's addressing men specifically. But our sin can get in, our, in the way of our relationship with God. Not only that, so that's one fallout of our sin in this life as a believer. Second fallout could be, as we addressed last week, the fallout is with your local church. You destroy relationships with other followers of Christ, right? Because, of course, this is now the application of the ideas he's talking about today. So, last week, 1 Corinthians 5, kick that guy out of your church. What does he actually say? Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So this person here has gone through the five steps of discipline, church discipline of Jesus. So Paul says, you need to kick that person out for the destruction of the flesh. There's a lot of debate. Does that mean he's going to die? Does that mean like, because of his like experience being kicked out and the shock of that, and then just like that, that fleshly nature, his sin nature will be cut away as then he'll learn his lesson. Like there's a lot of like, you know, people are debating on that, but ultimately though you're, you're removing that person but their spirit is still gonna be saved on the day of the Lord. So there's these really harsh consequences in this life because now this person's been cut off from their community. But here's the other thing. And the last thing we'll kind of close with today is that there's also this, other, this expectation, even as believers, New Testament says, you're gonna all stand before God and give an account for your life. And this is one of those passages. There's several in the New Testament that always have rattled me. And they don't need to, because we don't need to live in such a way that we're going to bring a lot to this meeting. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul says to this same church, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And in Greek, that's bima seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil he's reminding this messed up group of Christians look guys every last one of us are going to have to stand before God and give an account for what we've done like we're and that's not meant to be a shaming place but it is going to be in a sense a kind of a withering place that before we step into eternity right before we do that there is going to be a moment of accountability and I don't know about you guys but I don't want to either way I don't want to suffer consequences from god's lack of mercy with me because i'm not being merciful and I certainly don't want it when I get out of here. I don't want to have to stand before my Savior and have to give an account of my merciless heart or my sinful, unrepentant heart. So there are absolutely consequences, and there's just too many Christians that live their lives as if they're like willy-nilly. They're free to do whatever sin they want to because God loves me and God forgives me, and God wants the best for me, and God is just like a vending machine for me. And And there's the difference between free grace and cheap grace. Our grace is freely given to us, but it's not cheap. And too many Christians do have this mindset that they can just live however they want to, and it's fine. But there's plenty of passages in the New Testament of believers suffering unbelievably harsh consequences because of their sin. And again, I don't know about you, but I don't want to go stand before Jesus having lived my life with all this unrepentant sin, even as a follower of Christ. I don't want that to be my meeting with Jesus. And so again, this parable is about the harshness of that reality of saying, no, 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 there will be consequences for this kind of stuff. So what's that mean for you? Who do you need to forgive like today? Again, it's not saying what they did is right. Not that at all. But what does your heart need to let go of? Who do you need to show mercy on? It's not about a lack of justice at all. Because again, Matthew 18 lays out the process for accountability. But who do you need in your heart to start forgiving? Who maybe do you need? Somebody's asked for your forgiveness and you've refused to give it to them. Or you've not even told them. You've not even taken step one to let them know that they hurt you. Like, what do you need to do to make this personal today? Because this is the freedom Christ calls us to live in. It's the health he calls us to live in. Because these questions, again, are good questions for us to just let rattle around in our soul. First one is, if, if God is merciful, shouldn't you be merciful? Shouldn't I be merciful? And if I can find mercy with God, shouldn't others also find that in me? Next. If not, this is a scary reminder of this parable. There will be consequences both in this life and in the next. And then what does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful. for they will be shown mercy. I don't want to cut God's mercy off of my life now because I'm not willing to give it to other people. I don't want to be the guy in this story that like completely misunderstands the mercy of God and then God has to discipline me, maybe even harshly because of it. No, he wants us to live in freedom with each other. He wants us to live in freedom in a relationship with him. But who do we need to forgive? Who do I need to show mercy to? Because how we handle conflict, and controversy among the people of God is wildly important because the three things that we do, hopefully you've seen over the last couple of weeks, we need to do it with humility first, we need to do it with godly community, and ultimately we need to have mercy as we approach these things. We can't always be looking for retribution, even though that's the culture that we live in. We've gotta be looking for restoration. And that again, that, this ties into our theme for the year. 2023, our theme for this year has been gospel in real life. How does the scripture that we read apply to, change, and ultimately bless your life. This kind of stuff will bless your life because it'll set you free. You'll stop being so hung up on stuff. So let me close in prayer. Lord, I, I pray Jesus that you would help all of us, myself included, to be uh, in a place where we recognize that mercy is so important that you call us to freedom. You don't call us into in a position where we're being disciplined harshly by you. You call us to do these things ahead of time because our heart needs it. Our soul needs it, Lord. Our relationships with others need it, Lord. Your church, which is called to transform the world, needs it. And it's been getting beat up for long enough of people just being wounded and people being hypocritical and people just gossiping and hurting intentionally one another, Lord. Help this church, help us, help those that are watching be different in the way that we approach mercy and forgiveness, Jesus. Help us to do it as you have done it with us please, Lord, would you help us reflect that to be followers of Christ that like really reflect our Savior and his mercy and his forgiveness. And I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week!